want to talk to you about guidelines for navigating bulk wine logistics and more specifically international bulk wine. We're looking at exports from the U.S. or imports into the U.S. from foreign sources. Skip over that. You guys got that introduction. And if you're not familiar with J.F. Hillebrand, as she mentioned, um, J.F. Hillebrand is an international freight forward forwarder. We operate under two key global brands that each specialize in their niche markets. At J.F. Hillebrand, we deal in beer, wine, and spirits, both packaged and bulk. We also operate under uh, the banner of Transocean Bulk Logistics, which operates in the industrial bulk liquid sector. This is also the company that designed and manufactured the flexi tanks that we use today to ship bulk wine globally. So what I want to look at here, uh, we've tried to break this down into five easily digestible aspects of bulk wine logistics, international bulk wine. We want to talk about the global harvest, keeping your product safe in transit, product integrity, and then some of the challenges that you'll face out in the environment, in the landscape of shipping, be that container supply, uh, the current steamship line environment and landscape, and then some of the local and regional challenges, which we'll focus here on Oakland for that. So what we have here, um, some of you may have seen this, but this is a year-on-year -year comparison of global bulk wine, or global wine harvest, simple grape harvest. And immediately what we can see is there's almost a 20% reduction in global harvest year-on-year -year from 2016 to 2017. Now this isn't specific to bulk wine, but each aspect of this will impact bulk wine. Your major bulk wine supply regions, of course, you'll find in the New World, in Australia, in South America, South Africa, California. And as you can see here, they've had a pretty good uh, return this year versus last year. Those places haven't been impacted too hard, uh, but where we do have impact is in our more traditional finished goods markets of Italy, France, and Spain. So you think, uh, okay, well, no big deal for bulk wine, right? We won't have any impact. Well, that's not really the case because all those guys in Italy and France are now gonna be looking for wine to supplement their harvests. So what we've seen over the last two to three years of an increase in demand, coupled with uh, in different regions having um, natural disasters of sorts, be it a drought in Chile or Spain, or be it a blight in South Africa. It's culminated in a situation today where we have a very tight bulk wine market. I'm sure many of you are aware of this, but demand is up, supply is restricted, and of course what that leads to is an increase in cost. This is most recently visible in the latest Venex Global Price Index, which indicated an 18% price increase on bulk wines globally year on year. This was published in June of this year. So what does this do to us as buyers and producers and importers of bulk wine? And what it's done over the last several years and what it's gonna to continue to do is challenge us to find new ways to find good wine, new places to find it, Maybe we have to open up our uh, wallets a little bit, spend a little more money on it. But it's a trend that's happening in bulk wine, and it's one we can expect to continue for the foreseeable future. So knowing where you're going to source your wine, you've bought your wine, and you need to get it to a bottling or blending facility. 
right? And we're talking about international bulk wine, so we're shipping this across the world. We're not really addressing here today California bulk wine shipping into a local bottler. So the most important key for you at this point is to find a good partner. It's important to find a good transportation partner that's not only a traditional freight forwarder, but can act as a steward of your product in transit and make sure that that product arrives at bottling, at blending, with the same quality and characteristics that it had when you purchased it, when you tasted it, when you shipped it. So it's important to find the right partner, as I said, and, and how do we find that partner? Well, you gotta ask a lot of questions. You're gonna put a lot of wine, whether you're shipping 24,000 liters or two million liters of wine across the world. You got a lot invested in there. You wanna make sure that the material that's being used to ship that, that the equipment that's being used and the people that are shipping it are all, uh, are all as, as interested in maintaining that integrity as you are, I guess you could say. So manufacturing standards are important. When you're selecting a, a flexi-tank partner, you wanna find out where are they manufacturing their tanks. Do they have multiple manufacturing facilities that will that will avoid any disruptions in your supply chain? Are they vertically integrated? Can they provide for you information regarding that tank that you shipped in throughout transit? And now a lot of you might not deal directly with your flexi tank manufacturer and you may be dealing with a freight forwarder and letting them make these decisions for you. In that case, it's also just as important to ask the same questions and make sure that your partner is on your side. Um, one of the keys when dealing with a freight forwarder who doesn't necessarily manufacture the flexi tank is you want to make sure that they have a sourcing strategy. Will you get the same flexi tank today that you get tomorrow if you're shipping out of Chile? Will you get the same flexi tank out of Australia that you'll get out of Chile when you're shipping with this forwarder? You want to make sure that there's a buying strategy that ensures the material and the equipment you're getting is quality grade, it meets regulatory compliance, whether that's FDA, EU, wherever you may be shipping. And you wanna make, sure, uh, make sure that provider understands not just the nuances of shipping bulk liquid, but also just the regional implications, local and regional issues that everyone faces, whether that's in California or that's in Australia or that's in South Africa. One of the places that both of these uh, areas will kind of cross is in, is in the equipment, is in the flexi tank equipment, the containers that you'll be shipping the, the wine and flexi tank in. So there's a lot of impacts on this. In some areas, and mostly in our new world wine areas where bulk wine comes from, you've got one of two situations. Either this supply country is in a closed loop for instance, uh, from North America to South America, if you're importing wine from Chile, you've got an ocean freight carrier that's in a closed loop. All those containers are staying in a closed loop. And this is good for supply of your containers until something goes wrong. You have a port strike in Oakland, or you have something go wrong in Chile and containers start to stack, uh, or I'm sorry, in Panama, containers start to stack up. Well, that's taking those loaded containers out of service, essentially, until that congestion is held up. Is, is freed up, I'm sorry. 
Um, likewise, in areas like New Zealand, Australia, and also in South America, these regions are net exporters of 20-foot equipment. There's not a lot of goods coming into that country in 20-foot, and so you have carriers that are as a part of their process or moving equipment in, repositioning empty equipment to ensure that they can keep up with the cargo. So in either of these situations, even minor disruptions in the flow of these containers can lead to restriction in supply. If you've got two vessels worth of containers sitting in Panama or sitting in Oakland, you can bet that two weeks from that you're going to have a hard time finding 20-foot containers in Chile because they're all on the boats and they're all on the docks waiting. Likewise, in these uh, net export countries, if equipment is restricted, it can be a challenge. To complicate things further, when you're shipping with the flexi tank, there are further requirements and recommendations for the type of equipment that you use. The Containers Owner, the Container Owners Association in an effort to protect both their equipment and the cargo that's being moved, put together a list of recommendations for flexi-tank providers. And among those recommendations were the type of equipment to use. Now, in general, when you're shipping bulk liquid in a flexi-tank, you want a very good, very secure container. So what we look for is we look for a 30K rated container that is CSC plated and less than five years old. And beyond that, you know, out there in the environment shipping, there's a lot of goods that are shipped. Some people are shipping things and nailing them to the floor. Some people are shipping things that don't particularly smell too good. So when you, when you get your 20-foot container, you want to make sure that that, and you guys aren't doing that. We're doing this for you. But we need to make sure that, you know, that container doesn't have holes, doesn't have tears in it, that uh, the doors are functioning, that it's not bulged that there's not a foul odor in it, and you want to protect your wine. So all this is just to point out that when you're shipping in flexi tanks, you have a bit of a further and more restricted pool of equipment to choose from. It's a specialized transportation mode for that purpose. And because of that, again, these are areas where the right partner can make these challenges and headaches and lessen that, or take these challenges and headaches and lessen the impact that that could have on your supply chain. So just to uh, kind of catch up where we are, we talked about sourcing, we talked about uh, your equipment, we talked about finding the right provider, and so you've got your, you've got your wine in a container now and it's ready to ship, so we think, uh, Nothing else could go wrong at this point, right? Thank you. <laughs> That's not true, of course. The, um, the shipping line landscape, the ocean freight landscape today is a dynamic place, I guess you could say. Uh, we're in the midst of a newer round of consolidation, if everybody's not familiar. And so this is a very interesting chart that we've got here. Because you're looking at the same level of capacity in 2013 versus 2018. And all the circles, all the bubbles on your 2013 chart are carriers who no longer exist today. So what used to be 25 some odd carriers managing this, uh, this level of freight is now looking like more like 12 or 13 carriers. Those top five carriers in that five year stretch 
have increased their capacity by 70%. They have also increased their market share from 46% to 61%. So what we have today is less option. We've got, uh, and with that comes less capacity. And so what are the implications of this as you try to figure out what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next year? What's going to happen five years from now? Well, nobody's got a crystal ball, but we can look at a few things that will give us some indication of what to expect. Um, you know, I mentioned to you a lot of those carriers in that last slide have gone under, been acquired, fallen victim of consolidation. Those that you'll notice that have survived, the five you know, that I mentioned who have increased their market share, have done so through a demand for larger vessels. Where we used to manage vessels of 8,000 to 10,000 TEU 15 years ago, nowadays you've got the largest vessels coming in. We had the Benjamin Franklin come into Oakland earlier this year, 21,000 TEU. So this vessel is more than twice the size of your average vessel 10 years ago. Not all ports can accept that. I'm sure you guys have heard some of these before. And what we expect in the future with these larger vessels is fewer direct calls, less frequent sailings, more work, increased port and terminal congestion, because when that comes in, and we'll cover this shortly, uh, the number of moves and the, number of the, the amount of work that the port does to move that pretty much doubles. And just as we mentioned in the closed loop scenario of containers, now you've got 21,000 TEU on one vessel. It's twice the size of a previous vessel. And if all those containers are on the water being transported, they're not on the land ready for you to pick up and load for your exports. So we can expect until that's addressed that there will be somewhat of an equipment imbalance in certain areas that are servicing these vessels. And as I mentioned there also, with the consolidation, we have fewer options now. Just like any other industry, you have fewer options. You've got the potential for service level deterioration. You've got the potential for supply chain disruptions and the likelihood of rate volatility, which is really what drives this whole thing. Carriers looking for ways to improve their returns on their operating costs. So I've put up here some typical transit times and overall supply chain lead times from the typical wine providing wine uh, supply areas. Today it takes you 30 days. You want to plan for about 37 days from North Europe. This is an area that's uh, very populated, both North Europe and California as far as uh, the ports go. Recent regulations have caused uh, other requirements like slow steaming, which has already slowed down transit time some. Well, as we go forward, we can expect that 30 and 37 days to begin to stretch out. We don't have to worry here at Port of Oakland about vessel calls because the vessels can make it in here at Port of Oakland. We've got the deep draft. Other ports, that's not the case. And so you'll see more of a hub and spoke model. You'll see these large vessels calling into ports like Oakland who can receive the vessel and then maybe a port like Tacoma that can't receive the vessel or so forth, you'll have more feeder services going into those. So it's something to look forward to. Um, we all know it's a dynamic and, and volatile environment uh, as far as the way ocean freight goes. 
we don't expect that to change, but we do expect to be able to address these issues for you and these challenges as they come up. So uh, apart from ocean and your containers, uh, speaking specifically on some of the regional challenges we have here, um, I just wanna focus in on the Port of Oakland. This is a picture we've got of the Port of Oakland and what remains of the international container terminals. Um, one of these moved out last year. Today we have two international container terminals that most of the common carriers call to discharge their cargo. And what we've put on the right here is a sample scenario of a 13,000 TEU vessel that's 95% full. That vessel arrives at the Port of Oakland. In order to manage the amount of import and export cargo that has to be unladen and laden onto that vessel, you want to look at an average of about 13,700 lifts. That's the cranes lifting off the boat onto the truck and vice versa in return. Um, 77% of that cargo is going to be moved out of the port by truck. That's 10,600 trips. Get the container out, get it back in, right? I like this. If we stacked those trucks up in a line, it would run from Port of Oakland to Merced, 122 miles long. Now, this is a 13,000 TEU vessel. We had the Benjamin Franklin come in here earlier this year. More than 50% of the volume of that vessel. So you can double, you, you know, you can, you can add 50% on those numbers. Um, you can see that that quickly comes to about 20,000 lifts. I've read articles uh, in the number of containers that are handled and uh, where the best data is, is out of ports like LA. Uh, we've seen the amount of containers moved per vessel uh, jump from 4,000 to almost, 4,500 to almost 9,000 containers or, or moves happening on these boats in Los Angeles in an area that's a much larger import location. So Port of Oakland has had its struggles over the years. We dealt with a lot four years ago through a labor negotiation. They've bounced back. They've impressed me. I wasn't sure they could do it at one point, but They've done well. We've taken a comparison here um, from 20 years ago, 18 years ago in 1999. The largest container ship that pulled into, that called the Port of Oakland in 99 was 8,000 TEUs. This year, as I mentioned, 21,000 TEU. Number of marine terminals has reduced, um, which has actually proven to be a good thing. It's created a more efficient port. Today we have six terminals, and as I mentioned, two of those are dedicated to international container traffic. And since that time, the volume in the Port of Oakland has increased 40%, from 1.69 million TEU to over 2.3 million TEU. And that is expected to continue. Um, I know everybody in this room, we deal in wine and, and we like our wine. And we think it's very important and more important than most of the commodities out there, I would say. But uh, in reality, there's a lot of commodities that run in and out of the Port of Oakland. And while we are a huge agricultural port, um, it's just good to keep it in perspective. You know, what is, what's wine? What's the volume that's moving through? And, and you know, what portion of it is running through Oakland? 
Other than that, on the local landscape, we have uh, trucking challenges here in Oakland. We are uh, somewhat restricted access in, some, in, in term. Uh, there are certain restricted routes. There are a lot of bridges, a lot of tolls, high traffic. That creates a uh, congested environment, both outside the port on the roadways. The California has uh, one of the strictest road weight limitations in the US. It's the strictest, but shared with a couple other states, which also uh, puts more trucks on the road in one respect. It is, it is a safety and security issue, but the result of that being you can't hold as much cargo, you have more trucks on the road. And most recently here in 2018, there's been the implementation of some new rules around uh, USA trucking domestically. Um, not really any changes to the hours of service, but more so in the way that that is monitored and measured. And that's had quite an impact on inland transportation, um, impacting the port moves somewhat, but more specifically any long range trucking. So what we see is a reduced free time window, both at loading, unloading on premise and at the port. And then likewise, we see extended transit times where where some lanes used to maybe be a day and a half or two day trip, now they're becoming three day trips. Three day trips become four day trips because these hours of service are being monitored and carriers can only do so much. So I'm wrapped up here. Um, just in summary, I'll uh, let you know that we at JF Hillebrand, um, we look to address all these issues for our clients. We work specifically, as I said, in the beverage, beer, wine, and spirits market. Um, and this is what we look to do. This is the kind of questions we look to answer and help we look to provide so that you can get your wine to market in the most secure manner possible. And I think that's it. Any questions? No? Yeah? <laughs> Which part? <laughs> it's not the, you know, it's, uh, we used to have a joke uh, in the logistics business, and we would say it's not rocket science, because rocket science can be a lot easier than logistics. There are knowns in rocket science. You have, you have specific variables. When you put a container out in the water and you put it out in the wild, so to speak, everything's a variable. So it's a fun joke we like to play. I know I'm not going to make it in, the, in NASA. I'm not going to be there and, and pull that off. But it is a challenge. I do have another question. I'm curious why you didn't bring up, um, sorry, using trains as opposed to trucks. Well, for a couple of reasons. This, this is really specifically focused on flexi tank transportation of wine, and I prefer not to put flexi tanks on the rail. That's the main reason. Uh, the rail is a very aggressive transportation mode. What's that? Well, uh, are you familiar with shunting? You know what uh, the rail does. You know, another story for you. We've been out at the testing facility in Pueblo, Colorado, and shunting is when they release a car uphill and they allow that car to slam into the car downhill because that hastens the coupling of the cars, so to speak. You need, you need force, you need strong force to couple those cars. 
And you know, the rails will tell you that they don't shut. That's not allowed. They don't do that. And in fact, one guy was telling me that as a car slammed in behind us. They do. It's, 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 it's aggressive. It's, you know, now, I understand there are people who are bringing wine into bottling facilities in Chicago, in St. Louis, inland. Sometimes rail is necessary. And we do that. We will use rail. We recommend when you move on the rail that you move in a slightly smaller flexi tank, not our largest tank of 20, you know. Well, the 20,000 and the 22,000 liter tanks do respond better. It's, it's the more bulk wine you get in there, the more fragile it can be, you know. And, and transportation on the ocean isn't aggressive. It's a rolling kind of motion, you know. And when you put it on the rail, it's constantly shaking, it's constantly rattling, it's turning, it's jostling. And then if they want to switch cars, they're going to shunt. Um, you know, so, so that's really the main reason behind rail, but we do move flexi tanks on rail globally as needed, like I mentioned. We move tanks into Chicago all the time. Um, we do have customers who will ask us, hey, I, I want to get this wine from France and I want to get it to California really fast. Can I load it in France, discharge it in New York and run it on the rail all the way across the US? That's where I tell a customer, no, I don't want to do that. You know, um, that's just a matter of, of safety of the product and, and everything involved, you know, right? But, but you know, really it's, uh, it may save you two days to do that, it may save you three days. In the long run, sometimes when people are moving 24,000, I've got customers that are moving 24,000 liters in one flexi tank and that's their entire year. That's their entire year and all the product they're gonna sell. And so it's incumbent upon us to take care of that and make sure that's taken care of. And we do the same for customers who are doing two million containers a year or two million liters a year. But it becomes incumbent to ensure that you're taking care of the product, you're loading it in the safest way possible. You communicate these with the customer. Um, ultimately, all the decisions are up to you guys as a shipper. What I can do is I can provide you with the information, let you know what the challenges are, what could possibly be out there, but it's your product, and at the end of the day, I want to provide you with the information you need to make the best decision about how you're going to get that product to your bottling or blending facility. Thermal shock is not, uh, it, it's not as much of an issue, it's not as much of a consideration with bulk wine shipping as it will be with finished goods shipping. Um, there's a lot of reasons around that. Um, technically, you're looking at a, a large, you know, you're looking at a, a bulk liquid that essentially insulates itself. It's, it's got an alcohol content that allows it to do that. Um, and that's likewise in movement throughout transit. So it's constantly um, not necessarily being agitated, but being mixed and blended throughout transit, which allows for, you know, any heat loss and heat transfer to stay within that. So we don't, uh, we don't recommend insulating bulk wine containers in any way. We run 90,000 containers a year. We don't insulate a single bulk wine container. And what we have found that is by insulating those containers, it can actually be counterproductive and it can trap heat inside of the container, which won't allow your wine in this process of continuous blending to lose that heat that it may have gained in the process.
Not a problem. Anything? Well, we do. We request that. It's part of our process. And of course, the steamship lines, you know, we can't guarantee that they're going to do that. Um, what we do have playing against our, uh, playing in our favor is the fact that our containers are very heavy. You know, we load 24,000 liters. We got 24K in here. That's a heavy container. They're not going to put that at the top of the stack. In the same sense, we found that we don't necessarily want them to put that wine at the bottom of the boat, because the closer they put that to the engine room, the more exposed it is to an elevated temperature. So in general, we request that it's stowed below deck. Um, but again, once it's turned into the steamship line, it, it really is to their discretion. And you know, we, we count on the fact that our heavy containers aren't going to be loaded up high when they're doing their manifest. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is why I was mentioned, we don't use the VIN liner with bulk wine. VIN liner is effective and used for the case goods, um, and it is very effective at preventing thermal shock. It allows, it, temperature does rise within the container, but it rises at a much slower pace when that VIN liner is installed. Um, we do offer... We do. We, I mean, we, we offer and we have data on that because we can run, uh, we run temperature sensors. In some of our containers, we do this for customers by request. We can have the temperature sensors installed in the container or within a specific pallet. And this gives us an hour-by-hour hour readout at the end of transit to let us know what it went through throughout that. Every hour, it's going to give us a mark where it's at. Now, we've run trials of course, with our VIN liner and without our VIN liner, and we've got data supporting that. Um, but again, this is all also very dependent on where you're shipping and how that thermal impact's going to be. If you're shipping northern hemisphere to northern hemisphere, that's one thing. You want to look at the seasonality of it. Is it wintertime in the northern hemisphere? Do I need to watch for that? Is it peak summer when it lands in Oakland? But then you've got another challenge when you ship out of Argentina or Australia into California. Because there you may be leaving in the wintertime and arriving in the summertime 20 days later, or vice versa, leaving in the summer, arriving in the winter 20 days later. So this is where we really see swings in, that, in the thermal impacts on the container, is when we move from here to here. And of course, what is most dangerous for the wine is that sudden change in temperature. It's a rapid change rather than just a simple rising of temperature. So that's where the effectiveness of our VIN liner plays in, is to reduce that rapid rise in temperature or that rapid cooling as you move into cooler waters in the ocean. Absolutely. Anyone else? Can you turn that off?